This week in KMA Land, new developments in Fremont County wind lawsuit. Brush fire barrage brings KMA Land burn bans. Rockport bond issues passage dooms dome. Northwest Missouri communities pass marijuana sales taxes. Concrete poured on Shen Senior Apartment site. And Montgomery County Board approves ARPA purchases. I'm Mike Peterson. This week's episode of As the Turbine Turns featured a new development with Fremont County legal matters. Recently, Shenandoah Hills Wind Project, or Invenergy, filed a motion to dismiss a lawsuit filed against Fremont County by a local citizens group, primarily regarding the development and implementation of the county's wind ordinance, along with recent road use and decommissioning agreements made between the county and Invenergy. Court records indicate the county also filed a motion for judgment on the pleadings. The motions followed a judge's order preventing the Board of Supervisors from taking any permanent action on matters regarding the lawsuit. Sean Shearer, who serves as co-counsel for the petitioners, says they requested the order after the county placed right-of-way permits for Invenergy on their agenda shortly after an initial hearing was set in the case for April 5th. We then had to scramble around and we notified the judge that the the board had, as soon as he set the hearing, put changed the agenda and he put a kibosh on it and said no, no action on anything until the 5th. But since the motion to dismiss was filed, Shearer says all topics, including grievances against the county, are now set for a hearing in May. Shearer adds the arguments made in Invenergy's 42-page motion to dismiss are similar to what they've seen in other counties, including Page County. They try to say that the road use agreement does comply They try to say that the wind ordinance actually amended the zoning ordinance. They try to say that the process in adopting the wind ordinance was lawful. Um, And so the Shenandoah Hills basically is trying to say what the county did and what the county has done is perfectly fine. However, sure noted the county or board of supervisors have yet to make similar arguments themselves. Additionally, lawyer Theodore Spohr says he believes the county's motion for judgment serves as an endorsement of Invenergy's motion to dismiss and is further evidence of the toehold developers now have over the county due to crossing the hurdle of approving the road use and decommissioning agreements. By conceding in Fremont County that Invenergy has a vested interest, they literally then turn over all all future political, regulatory, economic, and environmental decisions to Invenergy, because Invenergy then takes the position that anything the county does that can affect them becomes illegal and hurts their vested interests. Sporer says Fremont County needs to look no further than Page County for the same issue, which Invenergy recently sued for avoiding their permit application due to material change. Shearer reiterated he and his staff's position that the wind ordinance is an extension of the zoning ordinance and that Invenergy's plan for the wind project failed to comply, including too much variance on the proposed number of turbines, which was up to 64. Petitioners have also alleged several safety concerns, including the turbine setbacks and the road use agreement's lack of necessary protections for the county's infrastructure. Wind made the news for another reason this week, as a catalyst for brush fires. Fire officials all across KMA land spent most of the week responding to an outbreak of field fires across the region. This prompted some county officials to issue open burning bans. Page County was the first to declare a burn ban last Friday. Jill Harvey is the county's emergency management coordinator. 
Harvey tells KMA News continued dry conditions, high winds, and a rash of brush fires led to the burning ban. We've had several controlled burns that have gotten away from the individuals. So it was a request of our fire chiefs here in Page County. And I just feel that in order to keep not only our responders, but our community safe, we need to issue a ban right now. Harvey says the county's fire departments have battled numerous controlled burns veering out of the control the past few weeks. I would say across the county, all of our departments have been out on different calls at least once a day. Corinda, I don't know that they've had as many. Shenandoah and Essex and Coyne have been out a few times. They've had to respond for mutual aid over into Fremont County also. And, well, and I think yesterday alone, I think we were on, we, they assisted two different calls about the same time. So there's just a lot of fuel out there to burn. And with the winds, it's just going to be a bad time to have any kind of fire going. Harvey also expresses concerns about previous controlled burns rekindling with the wind. I am also asking that anyone who has had some controlled burns in the past couple of days, please go out and check on those and make sure they don't reignite. Uh, With our winds, they can cause those to start up again. And if we catch them soon enough, we're able to get them out faster if needed. Similar conditions prompted Montgomery County Emergency Management Coordinator Brian Hammond to issue a burning ban in his county. Obviously, we haven't received much of any moisture over the winter, and springtime rains have been few and far between for some. Over the last couple of weeks, we've just had a rash of grass fires, field fires, rubbish fires, not necessarily fires that have been started intentionally, but a lot of fires that have rekindled and got out into pastures, CRP ground, and field. Hammond says fire departments in his county have answered at least one field fire call a day, and in some cases two or three per day over the past couple weeks. It's getting to the point where our volunteers are taxed. Um, We definitely don't want to see anything like we saw last October 23rd with a large field fire. Given the warm, windy conditions, seems like every day is windy and it's getting windier. And then, unfortunately, the unfortunate events that occurred last night in Red Oak with the wind-driven fire that ultimately resulted in the loss of a structure. Fire destroyed a house at 1903 200th Street or East Summit Street in Red Oak Tuesday evening. Red Oak Fire Chief John Bruce says the fire appears to have originated from a fire pit roughly 10 yards to the north of the residence before wind-driven embers ignited vegetation along a fence line. Flames spread to the northwest portion of the first floor. In addition to banning open burning, Hammond reminds residents not to throw out cigarettes from running vehicles and take other precautions. It's pretty much anything. Anything that can spark an ignition source, spark. One of our fires this week was started from the railroad. A hot ember come off one of the train wheels and sparked a large brush fire. So definitely do not throw out smoking material. Be very smart with everything you do outdoors, whether it's vehicles, tractors, implement farm equipment. It's extremely dry. It's extremely hazardous. We've already seen several red flag days. Burn ban violators are subject to criminal charges as well as civil penalties for any damages, losses, or injuries resulting from a fire. Pottawatomie County officials issued a similar burn ban Tuesday. Northwest Missouri voters decided some important issues and races in Tuesday's municipal elections. And patrons of the Rockport R2 School District sent a resounding message Tuesday, the dome is coming down. 
By more than 67% of the vote, voters approved a $6.5 million bond issue for a long list of facilities upgrades. Chief among the improvements is demolition of the district's quarter-century-old dome structure and construction of a new school facility with new classrooms and a central library for K-12 students, among other amenities. Rockport R2 School Superintendent Dr. Ethan Sickles tells KMA News he's excited over the bond issue's passage. The future of Rockport R2, I think, is going to be a great place. This not only helps, you know, in the immediate future, but it's going to be a key building for us for a long time. So, you know, I'm excited. I, I felt confident that our, our community would support the bond issue, but you never know. I mean, there, there are tough times economically and, and in other locations. So, um, you know, we're, we're excited. We're looking ready to move forward, and now it's time to get to work on the next steps. Sickles says several factors factors led to the referendum's approval. Number one, I think uh, most people are, are ready for the dome to be gone. That's just one of those things that it, it served its time, it served its purpose, but uh, we need to move forward with a better building uh, that helps educate our students. I, I think that's a key one. You know, otherwise, I, I think people are confident with what we're doing here at Rockport R2. They support our teachers, support our kids, and they want what's best for the future of education here in Rockport. The superintendent says the new building's construction will blend in with other facilities improvements over the past two decades, including construction of a new gym made possible with the passage of a $2.7 million bond issue in 2014. I mean, right now, you know, it's definitely a hodgepodge of buildings when you've got some newer stuff here on the north end in the high school area and the new gymnasium. And with this new building kind of in the center part of our building complex, it's going to feed right into the elementary. I, I think it, it just matches what we're trying to do here. It, it uh, you know, makes the aesthetics look a little bit better in general, but more importantly, it provides the classroom space, storage space, etc. that we need to provide opportunities in the future. Demolition to the Dome is expected this summer with the project's targeted completion date of August 2024. Recreational marijuana users must soon pay a tax for lighting up in Maryville. Earlier this week, Maryville voters resoundedly approved implementing a 3% sales tax on adult-use marijuana within the city. The decision follows Missouri voters passing Amendment 3 in November, making recreational marijuana legal in the state. City manager Greg McDonald tells KMA News the city is grateful for the voters' approval of the sales tax. Fortunately, the 87% of the voters um, approved the 3% additional retail sales tax on marijuana, which will provide uh, hopefully a tremendous amount of revenue to uh, continue critical public services as well as uh, ongoing community initiatives. According to the Missouri Cannabis Trade Association, the bill of the city could bring in around $150,000 annually based on current sales. Despite less support for Amendment 3 in rural areas of the state, McDonnell attributes the voters' approval to recognizing the opportunity to bring in some extra funding for the city's services. A lot of the rural areas uh, voted no on Amendment 3, um, and, and, and so Amendment 3 was generally carried in Missouri by uh, by the more uh, metropolitan areas. And so um, I think generally uh, once Amendment 3 passed, I think uh, rural voters here in Missouri, especially in Maryville, um, really got behind the, the, the idea to, uh, to secure as much local revenue as possible, again, to, to continue those, those community efforts. The city tax will also be on top of a statewide 6% sales tax on recreational marijuana, also mandated by Amendment 3. Following voter approval, McDaniel says the council plans to pass an election certification Monday. The 3% tax on adult-use recreational marijuana goes into effect October 1st. Similar citywide taxes on pot sales were approved in Rockport and Tarkio. Atchison County voters approved a countywide pot sales tax. Construction of a new senior apartment complex in Shenandoah took a gigantic step forward this week. 
Activities resumed at 1401 West Sheridan Avenue, the site of the Shenandoah Senior Villas Apartment Complex, a proposed 40-unit structure for individuals aged 55 and up. Crews from Coaster Construction of Grimes poured 200 yards of concrete at the site's pad. Paul Laughlin is the company's construction superintendent. Laughlin told KMA News bad weather delayed this major milestone to the project's construction by about a month. After that eight inches of snow and an inch and a half of rain, it just uh, it hurt us. The uh, site was just too muddy to do anything with it. It cost some extra money to add some extra rock down. Uh, we kept trying to press forward, uh, so today's the day. Construction began back in December following demolition of the former gas station at that location. The project is expected to be finished in March 2024. Montgomery County officials this week used COVID relief bucks for major purchases. By unanimous vote Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved spending of the county's American Rescue Plan Act funding for three purchases. Montgomery County Sheriff John Spinagle asked for $28,000 for taser gun equipment. Spinagle says tasers are an essential tool for his department. Our taser contract is coming up in June and they need to be replaced. We've got tasers that are going out the screens. So I'm requesting for our office the purchase of nine new tasers, which will output each deputy. Spinagle says his department has used tasers for 10 years and they must be replaced every five. Additionally, the supervisors approved the County Emergency Management Agency's request for $25,000 in ARPA funds to reprogram first responders' radios. County Emergency Management Coordinator Brian Hammond says the reprogramming allows for communications with the county school district. We've been live on our system for approximately three years. The radios have been programmed for three and a half. The big push to get them reprogrammed now is because under the governor's new school safety initiatives, all the schools have radios um, and their facilities are will shortly. Um, so this will get all of their talk groups, all of their channels, and all of our radios across the county. And the board approved County Auditor Jill Ozuna's request for purchasing new voting equipment from Unison for more than $54,000. In addition to being cumbersome, Ozuna says the current machines are 10 years old and are not compatible with today's technology. The voter scans that we currently have are about 10 years old and very outdated. There was problems with them last year jamming. They're slow. They're big and bulky, hard to move, a ton of room to store. Ozuna says the new equipment offers advantages. The best features about them is that they've completely almost eliminated the barrier of them jamming, the way that they scroll down instead of 90 degree. And then the screens are also bigger. They're rapid, so it's super fast. Like if a ballot does go in and it's not right, it'll spit it right back out. Or if it goes in, it's instantly reads and tells you successful. She expects the new machines to be available for the citywide and school board elections in November. Franchise fee discussion continued in Red Oak this week. At its regular meeting Monday evening, the Red Oak City Council reviewed the proposed ordinances regarding 25-year franchise agreements with Mid-American Energy regarding the services, which could also include language authorizing the city to implement a fee if they choose to do so. The agreements primarily allow the utility company to utilize the city right-of-way to provide gas and electric services to the community. The council also faces a May 23rd deadline to renew the agreements, and a public hearing is set for April 17th. The city attorney, Bree Sorensen, says the top priority for the city is continuing the agreements themselves to ensure residents and businesses receive the necessary services. The current ordinance says that MidAmerican has a franchise for 25 years. So your consideration is to continue that franchise, approve the renewal of that franchise with the franchise fee consideration 
at a later date. City officials initially considered renewing the current agreements without language concerning a franchise fee. However, Mayor Shauna Silvia says Mark Renders with Mid-American says the council could instead incorporate the language but leave the percentage, which could range from 1 to 5 percent, blank. You can approve them with the franchise fee language included and the percentage amount left blank until an amount is determined. If all three readings are eventually approved without a percentage amount, then if the city later decides to put in an amount, yes, you would have to go through the public hearing process again along with three readings. Because this ordinance is different than the original one. There's a lot more detail to this one. Given the somewhat tight deadline, Sorensen advised the city could move forward with incorporating franchise fee language in the agreement, but should have a general idea what the percentage could eventually be. Additionally, Sorensen encouraged the council to get the ball rolling quickly on the required three readings of an ordinance. Because if, it, if there is enough public controversy that you don't feel that you can waive the second or third and or third reading, that you have to have all three hearing or uh, readings, then you, you don't want to be up against the time clock there. While the fee might draw some ire from the community, Councilman Brian Bill says the city has to make up for the lost revenue from recent and potential legislative action from the state house. With the budget as it is, and we know where we're going to, we kind of know where we're going to fall with that right now, and you know, projected costs in the future, and you know, our actually our projected revenues are going to go down because of some of the new uh, uh, state bills that have just been passed with property tax relief and such. So. We're going to have to make up some revenue somewhere or cut some services somewhere. I don't, I don't really see we have any choice with one or the other. The first of three readings of the ordinance reviewing the franchise agreements with MedAmerican is scheduled to follow the public hearing April 17th. Nebraska City Police are remembering a fallen soldier through a new canine officer. At its regular meeting Monday night, the Nebraska City City Council welcomed Alex to the department. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Tuesday morning, Nebraska City Mayor Brian Beckett says Alex came to the community about a month ago to succeed the city's current canine officer. He's a German Shepherd, the one-year-old, highly trained. I think we picked him up out in Pennsylvania from a kennel out there that's well-known within uh, canine operations. Alex will replace Mac. Mac is currently still on the rolls. He's doing work, but uh, unfortunately due to some teeth problems, Mac can no longer do all the functions of like fighting down and things like that. He's still in use. Very much in use as, as for sniffing purposes as far as narcotics and drugs and things like that. Mac is expected to retire within a year. Alex serves in honor of Army Corporal Matthew L. Alex Alexander, who died in Iraq in 2007. Beckett says the dog's handler, Police Sergeant Chris Richardson, wanted to memorialize fallen officers, firefighters, or military figures. And Alexander's name was on his list. Sergeant Richardson, through much work, got in touch with his family, Matthew's family, and uh, his mom informed him on the phone call that here's their son, Alex Alexander. Matthew Alexander had actually been called Alex. So it seemed like there was some... Uh, maybe divine intervention there. Alexander's parents were present during Monday night's meeting. The mayor says canine officers are an essential component of local law enforcement agencies. You know, with traffic stops and being a through kind of community with the highways and all that, when you do make stops and you've got other suspicions there, it's always good to be able to have that capability to pull in the canine to help with those cases. Also on properties in town and things like that where there's, you know, probable cause and suspicion to employ the canine. And it just gives it more validity, of course, in the case. Local businesses raised $18,000 for the new dog's purchase and expenses. 
Two small-town kids doing big things as adults were honored in Shenandoah last weekend. Students and staff members, past and present, celebrated the community's education tradition in the second annual Excellence in Education Banquet. Sponsored by the Shenandoah, Iowa Education Foundation, the event pays tribute to Shenandoah, Ohio alums with noteworthy careers. Matt Mickle, a 1985 SHS graduate, was honored as Alumni of the Year for 2023. After earning a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Notre Dame, Mickle launched a career of more than 30 years in the aerospace industry. Currently, Mickle is senior manager of development projects with Boeing, supporting NASA's International Space Station. Mickle tells KMA News the space station's development has been a centerpiece of his career. When I first started out with McDonnell Douglas, there was this new thing called the International Space Station um, that was just on the on the design books. And so I started in as an engineer doing analysis for the International Space Station in its design phase. And then I saw that program all the way through when they they started manufacturing it and launching pieces into space. And I'm still working on it to this day. It's still orbiting the planet every 90 minutes and still generating science, hopefully beneficial for humanity. Mickle credits his Shenandoah years for his success in his field. Honestly, again, the small town values of really being genuine with each other and looking out for each other really benefited me in my career, just working with others in the NASA community in Houston for the last last 30 years. Dr. Shelley Rabel Riley presented this year's keynote address. A 1983 Shenandoah, Ohio alum, Riley is currently an associate professor at Northwest Missouri State University's Department of Natural Science and vice president of Riley and Rabel Consulting Services, Incorporated. Riley worked 14 years in the pharmaceutical industry before coming to Northwest in 2009. Like Mickle, Riley has fond memories of growing up in Shenandoah. Uh, lots of good memories in terms of, you know, being able to run around the neighborhoods and ride bikes and swim at a large swimming pool, roller skate, go to Page Theater. Lots of great memories of um, hanging out around town and also, you know, the, the school. I, I just... Uh, have lots of great memories. As a college chemistry instructor working with undergraduates, Riley says she appreciates her Shenandoah High teachers more than she ever did. I see a disparity actually in the learning opportunities that they have depending on where they went to high school or, and where they did their also their elementary school as well. I think it's it's more important now than ever to be able to provide learning opportunities and opportunities for engagement of students during their elementary and secondary education. Riley says she's glad SEAF is gaining support among Shenandoah residents and alums, not only for carrying on the tradition of the community schools, but to provide opportunities for the next generation of learners. Also at Saturday night's banquet, three Shenandoah School District staff members received the first annual Spirit Awards. Elementary counselor Andrew Lines, middle school science and STEM instructor Angela Hunter, and high school science and agriculture instructor Lindsay Lundgren. Six other staffers were honored for 25 years plus in education. Maria Blake, Chris Chamberlain, Dan Jennings, Vance Peterson, and Brenda Wood. Teacher contracts are set in the Red Oak School District for next school year. 
Meeting in special session Wednesday afternoon, the Red Oak School Board approved a collective bargaining agreement with the Red Oak Education Association, including a $2,200 bump in pay for teachers across the board. The agreement also includes a base salary of more than $37,000. The agreement came just after a month since both sides presented their initial proposals. Red Oak School Superintendent Ron Lorenz says the agreement also includes a one-time $1,000 retention stipend to current teachers returning for the 2023-24 school year. All in all, a very um, positive, mutually beneficial settlement. Um, when you look at just the $2,200 increase, that represents a 3.2% increase. Uh, when you include the $1,000 retention bonus, it's a 4.53% increase. While the agreement freezes the pay schedule from the current school year, Lorenz says it also adds $8 to the supplemental pay to $278 per unit. The superintendent says he was pleased to see a consensus in a timely fashion on the one-year agreement. ROEA representatives initially proposed a 6% total package increase, including a $2,000 raise to the base wage and another 6% increase for the 2024-25 school year. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.